You might like to keep your Bibles open at 1 Peter. Uh, Sadly, we live in a world which I think many people have deeply misunderstood what Christianity is about. Uh, 60 or 70% of Australians claim to be Christian. People in our society think that you are a Christian if you're nice and you live a good life and you try to treat everyone well. Now, we live in a society that believes that if you do what Iris did this morning, you're baptised, then you'll go straight to be with God in heaven. So you can either be a good, nice person who treats everyone well, or you just need to get done, and then you'll be right. Well, the book of 1 Peter tells us that that thinking is terribly wrong. Christians are people who first and foremost put their trust in Jesus to rescue them from the debt of their sin, to wipe away the debt and wipe away the guilt. Jesus has lived and died and risen physically from the dead and in doing this he has demonstrated his power and authority over death. There is no point following someone who's still dead in a grave and he's offered us the opportunity to have our sin forgiven and our relationship with God restored. We don't follow a dead leader. And I don't say that arrogantly, I say that with confidence. The bones of Jesus are not in the grave. He has risen physically from the dead. And after he had risen, you could touch him and you could watch him eat. When he was hungry, that is. 1 Peter reminds us as Christians that that's where our hope is. It is not wishful thinking. It's a hope that's founded in the reality of past events, real historical events, events testified to by eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses who were for Jesus and eyewitnesses who couldn't stand Jesus. 1 Peter reminds us that whilst our hope is based on past events, though, our hope in Jesus is forward-looking. It's a hope that looks forward to being with God in heaven for all eternity. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus or you're trying to work through some of this Jesus stuff, then it's worthwhile asking questions because we're not dealing with light thinking. We're dealing with stuff that may affect your eternity. This is not whether or not to fill up at 67 cents or 38 cents. Sorry, $1.67. I just dropped the dollar off because we're past that, aren't we? We're trying to understand why is it that Christians can be so confident? The reason Peter gives us is that we have a hope that's won for us by Jesus and that victory winning is based on past reality of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's worthwhile writing down some of your questions of why that you'd like to be like to have answered. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been saved for a purpose. Jesus has won, won your your eternity. One Peter calls it our hope in eternity. And the section we're looking at today says after Jesus has won this, this is how you should respond. You see, from verse 13 onwards, we're going to see how God's word gives us four things, four ways that we should respond as followers of Jesus. So with that in mind, how about I pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the passage. Our Lord and our God, we thank you. We thank you that we do have your word. 
We thank you that our hope is not based on wishful thinking, but on reality. And we pray, Lord God, that as followers of Jesus, if that's what we are, we will take following you seriously. And we ask that one Peter will help us to know what that means. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Well, you want to have your Bibles open because that helps me make sure you've seen that I'm not making this stuff up. Verse 13, there's a therefore. You know, it has been for the first 12 verses telling us some good stuff about what Jesus has done. That is the hope that an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade kept in heaven for us. That is good news, isn't it? So if you take hold of the gift that God offers you, you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade kept in heaven for you. But sadly, all too often we and others think that Even though Jesus is real and worthwhile following, he's not going to get much of our trust in the sense of, I'm not going to change much of what I do. Iris was talking about some of that before, wasn't she? And I think as she reflected on that, she reflects what many of us struggle with. I'm not sure where we get this wrong thinking from, but if Jesus has saved us, he saved us for a purpose and it's not to go back to what we were. It's really wrong thinking to think that Jesus, after saving us, makes, has no claim on what we do. He has offered you a free gift of salvation, and the Bible says that time and time again. You can't earn your salvation. It is given to you by God's grace and mercy. There is nothing you can do to earn your spot in heaven, not even baptism. But this free gift of salvation will radically impact every part of your life. And that's where Peter picks up from verse 13 through to verse 25, four differences. And can I tell you, those differences are not suggestions. God is not saying, listen, as long as it doesn't impact you too much, see whether you can give this a go in the next couple of days. These are actually commands. That's pretty important. If we are serious about our faith, if we are serious about Jesus and we hear a command from Jesus, we should be listening. So what does God say? Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. You know, it speaks of the reality that Jesus is coming back again. Now that will happen either at a time which I don't know, or when you die, whichever one comes first. And in some senses, you stand before God when you stop breathing. And for those who put their trust in Jesus, you will go to be with God in heaven forever. We should want to know if that's true, because that reality, if it is true, changes everything, doesn't it? In the translation of the Bible we read out before, in verse 13, it says... Um, if you've got the one here, it says, prepare your mind for action. In the one that was up there, it had have minds that are alert. The words in the original language give you the idea of preparing your thinking for imminent battle. Now, it's not a battle with swords and guns, but rather a battle of obedience. It says that if you're serious about your eternal salvation... You and I will be people who prepare our minds so that we know what God's will is for our life. 
Not only are we to prepare our minds for this battle, but we are to be sober-minded. You'll have noticed that with little words up on the data projector. If you read in the Bible in your pews or in the seats that you're at, it says be self-controlled. Sober-minded is what it means. A drunk does not reason well, even though they think they do. A drunk drunk mind rationalises bad choices. And God wants us to be alert. It says to be sober-minded so that our reasoning and therefore our actions will be wise and godly. Now, the two points, you need to be alert and you need to be preparing your minds for battle. That's actually what it means if you're really going to be setting your minds fully on the hope that has been won for you. Now, that might seem a bit extreme been asked to set your mind fully on something give your life over to god completely we live in a world where people don't like extremist thinking but i think that comment we just write off any extremist thinking is pretty naive and reductionistic it depends on what your extremist thinking is doesn't it would you rather meet on a dark lonely night a follower of jesus who takes their Uh, faith seriously or a gangster who takes their faith seriously a number of years ago i had some friends who claimed to follow jesus but they became very concerned for their daughter because their daughter was taking her faith a bit too extreme she was reading her bible and going to bible study let me tell you, God is super keen for you to take your faith in him to an extreme, but don't you get ever get the idea that that means that you'll be allowed to Bible bash people and get rid of those people you don't agree with. You see, extreme Christianity is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Extreme Christianity is living as God's people in a world which doesn't like you. That is the context of 1 Peter. An extreme Christian will be shaped by God's word in their thinking and in their living and in their loving, especially in their loving of those who don't follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus are called to follow Jesus fully and the reality is that you cannot claim to follow Jesus half-heartedly. It will not work. If you want to have an each way bet on Jesus, I can guarantee you where that will end. So how does this first command impact the way that you and I should live today? If you are a follower of Jesus, are you preparing your mind by seeking to know and understand what God's word says. I think we heard some of that in Iris's testimony, didn't we? That her, what she learned from God's word has now radically changed the way she thinks and lives. She's not perfect any more than one of us is perfect, but she's allowing God's word to be the thing that shapes her. She's preparing her mind for action. Are you regarding, are you preparing your mind for action? Are you alert? Are you alert regarding potential and actual attacks on truth? We live in a world where people like to rewrite what the Bible says or interpret it in a way which suits what the engineers want to hear. Are you alert to gospel opportunities, 
to speak about the hope that you have, to do it with gentleness and respect. We'll see that a little later on in 1 Peter. Do you, are you planning to be an unthinking, half-hearted follower of Jesus? Well, actually, you don't actually plan to do that. If you don't plan to be a thinking, uh, fully committed follower of Jesus, the other will happen by accident. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 tells us to prepare our mind for action, to be alert so that we can be fully focused on living for Jesus which is where the next command takes us. The second command in verse 15, it says, be holy in all you do. Now, there's two reasons that we're to be holy in all we do, but often we hear the word holiness and we sort of think that's an an old-fashioned word and we wonder what it really means. And the good news is that the passage gives us a good idea what it means. Holiness is about being obedient to what God's word says. You see, it says, now that you know what goodness is or now that you know what truth is, Put it into practice. Yeah, but before any of us were Christians, even if we grew up in a churchy family or a fed income Christian family, we sort of didn't think through what we did, we just did it. And we did it either because our family of origin did it or the society that we live in does it. But now that we know what God's word says, we should be choosing to be different, to put into practice what God's word says. Because now we know, once you were, before you were a follower of Jesus, you didn't seek to live in the way that God honours, God wants. Now that you are, you should. And there's another reason why we should be obedient to God. It says we should be obedient to God because our Father in heaven is holy. We want to reflect his character. Two reasons. Now we know what goodness is, now we know what obedience is, now we know what holiness is, we should do it, but... God, is the, God, our Father, is the perfect example. It makes sense for us to reflect the character of God in the way that we live. If we have our minds transformed by what God's word says, we should be then putting it into practice. We're no longer ignorant and we've got a great example of what it means to put in godliness into practice. There's, now, there's more you could say on the second command, but I, but I want us to pause and wonder how does that second command impact the way you and I live today or how should it if you're in the habit of living in a society that's not Christian and and really wanting the Christian the 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 non-Christian society to put in godliness into practice this passage says your thinking is wrong there's no point protesting that the world that we live in is not living the way God wants they don't care You see, as God's people, our role is not to transform society by forcing laws on them that they don't know and understand. This passage is pointed at us. We are to be people who live godly lives, obedient to what God wants. So do we. We're not living lives of perfection. The passage is not calling on us to do that because the, God, the passage has already said that our hope has been given to us by the mercy of God, not because of anything you and I have earned. But even as people who have been given salvation, we should be striving for God-honouring, obedient living. And that'll take effort. That won't happen overnight. 
And sometimes as Christians, we reflect the idea that I can become a Christian and godliness will flow out from me naturally. It's not like that. Prepare your minds for action and be alert, be obedient. You see, once we know what God-honouring, obedient living looks like, once we know what God doesn't like, we will have the opportunity to put aside our ungodliness and work hard at the obedience God wants from us. Are you doing that? As a follower of Jesus, are you seeking to put aside ungodly thinking and actions? Are you seeking to put aside your greed, your pride, your covetousness, our ungodly relationships, our gossip, our slander? The list can go on. I'm just picking up ones that just flow out of our thinking all the time. Are we seeking to reflect godly living? So are you and I taking godliness seriously? Because 1 Peter says that we should because of the hope God has won for us. Or are we just giving it lip service? And that can be very challenging to answer, can't it? What sort of effort are you making to reflect the character of your heavenly father? Let me reframe that a little more positively. You see, in light of all that God has done, just start stacking up the list of what God has done for you. In light of that and the eternal hope that he has won for you, do you delight in godly living? Do you delight in pursuing godly living? The third command, verse 17. You see, both to us and to the initial readers of 1 Peter, we're reminded that God is an impartial judge and we're called to live lives in reverent fear, remembering where we're heading. You see, Peter has already reminded them of the hope that they have. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new hope, into a li- given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Peter's reminded them of that. And the temptation is that when you hear that, you think, well, God has given that to me. I don't need to worry about what I do. It's already a gift. I can treat God any way I want to, can't I? Well, verse 17 through to verse 21 tells us that's not the case. Remember the gift that you've been given was incredibly costly. Peter reminds them of what the cost Grace is unbelievably good. Grace is undeserved. God gave it to us out of his mercy, not because you or I were worth it. He lavishes his grace upon us, but it's never cheap. Don't ever get that idea. It was bought, he says, with the precious blood of Jesus. And so if we understand the cost of your eternal hope, we should be people who put aside sin. Uh, 1 Peter talks about it as the empty way of life that was handed down to you. Remember, God did not save us because we half made it ourselves. He saved us out of his mercy from our empty way of life. Now, he's not saying that non-Christians are wasting their time in everything they do. 
There's plenty of non-Christians and Christians that have achieved great things in life. But do you know what? In the end, all of that will count for naught. If I amass $100 billion, I leave it all behind. If I do something that is really, really good, that enables cancer to be cured for the next 50 years or the next 10 generations, that is really good. But do you know what? Before the judgment seat of God, it won't count for anything. Everything I've achieved will one day be put to naught by death. My death or other people's death. And the good news is that Jesus has rescued us from the empty, futile lives that we live for a hope that lasts for eternity. That's good news. It can never perish, spoil or fade. So how does the command in verse 17 to be people who live lives in reverent fear of God impact you and I? We hear about God's grace regularly and I won't ever stop telling you about it. But does God's grace undermine your desire to be obedient to his word? I don't need to take God's word seriously. It'll all work out. Do you let your knowledge of God as your heavenly father undermine your understanding of his holiness? I can sin today and just ask God for forgiveness tomorrow. He won't mind. Now that you're saved with an eternal hope, Do you care about sin in your life? Does the awesome reality of God, his character, spur you on towards being obedient to him? You know, in our church culture, it's easy to grab God's word and pick and choose the bits out of it that we like and dismiss the bits that we don't like as being outdated or no longer binding. We can say we now know more, we've lived for 2,000 years longer, we've progressed from there. And there are some who claim to follow Jesus that will dismiss God's word as old-fashioned and outdated, especially when it comes to godly living. But the reality is, what God-honouring living required of us 2,000 years ago God-honouring living requires of us today because God has not changed. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 tells us to take seriously what God valued 2,000 years ago as we live for him today. Well, the fourth command, verse 22, love each other deeply from the heart. It's all too often we can think about our relationship with God as just between me and God. That's how we work. It's just me and God and you guys don't get input into my relationship with God and my relationship with God doesn't have any input into you. We are individualistic in our thinking. 
But this command reminds us that as God's people, we have a right relationship with God given to us that is serious. But it also impacts all our relationships with each other. Our relationship with God is not simply between us and God. It should deeply affect the way we treat others. You see, living in light of the gospel is not just a God-focused reality. It is a God-focused reality, but it is also an other people-focused reality. You see, the Bible says, about, says stuff about how you should love your enemies. The Bible says stuff about how you should uh, treat those you disagree with. The Bible says stuff about how you should love those who have a different point of view to you and love people with different lifestyles to you. And the model of that, of course, is that God loved us first. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So our hope before God should radically impact the way we love others. Verse 22, however, is focused on the love that we should have as a church family towards one another. And it says it should be love one another deeply from the heart. You see, God does not want us as a church to give out superficial light love. He wants it to come deeply from the heart like his love for us does. What does that really mean? What does it mean for us as brothers and sisters in Christ at this church, Tree Gully Anglican, to love one another deeply from the heart? I wonder how often we seek to build up those relationships. Or is our church stuff just us and God and let's get out of here? Do we seek to build up relationships where our masks are dropped and where honesty prevails, where we actually communicate something of value to each other and where we grow community together? I think that's what it means to love one another deeply from the heart is all about. Now, we could always wait for someone else to do it, but then nothing would ever happen. And so we're reminded of the incredible cost it is for God to love us and that there should be something we are prepared, a cost we are prepared to bear as we reflect that love to others. Four commands in this section. How we should live in light of the salvation that God has won for us. Command number one, set your hope fully on Jesus. There's to be no half-hearted attempts to follow Jesus and that will require you to prepare your minds and to be alert so that you know what so what you know you'll put into action second command is actually put it into action be holy because god wants you to be obey jesus now you know what he wants and obey jesus because that's god's character the third command is live your life in this world remembering where you're heading in reverent fear now that you have Uh, You understand grace and you understand the character of God. Grace is not cheap. Take godliness seriously. And finally, we are commanded to love one another deeply from the heart. Not a shallow love, a deep and costly love. How about I pray for us as we not only hear these commands of God, 
but want to be people who live them out. Our Lord and our God, in your mercy, help us not merely to listen to the word and so deceive ourselves. Help us to do what it says. We thank you for the incredibly good gift you have won for us, the hope that we have, an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil or fade. And in light of that hope, help us, Lord, to be people who prepare our thinking for Christian living, who stay alert so that we don't get distracted. Help us to be people, Lord God, who take obedience seriously, And understand that the grace that you've won for us is not cheap grace so that we might live our lives in reverent fear. And Lord, we pray that our relationship with you will deeply impact the relationship we have with others, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.